Our scripture this morning comes from Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of our Lord. You You may be seated. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, even the passages that are difficult and uh, hard to apply to our lives. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be with us this morning. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would quiet my own heart, my own voice, and magnify your heart and voice to your people. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this morning, uh, we are continuing along in our series, Kingdom Culture. We're, we're spending some time in this Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we're now coming to this short passage in which Jesus is addressing the matter of divorce. And if there is an aspect of our fallen brokenness that has had a more negative impact on our culture than divorce, I can't really conceive of it. I think that divorce has affected every single one of us to one degree or another. Many, maybe even perhaps most of us, have come from homes that were broken by divorce. We all have loved ones and neighbors whose lives have been turned upside down by divorce. I myself, I'm still dealing with the effects of my parents' divorce that happened when I was 14 years old. It affects my own marriage. It affects how I relate to my own children. And I know that some of us are hesitant to get married because divorce is so common and some of us have already been divorced. Uh, Some of us even more than once. In this room are people who have come right up to the edge of it and somehow held on. And I suspect that there are at least some of us who are even right now perhaps contemplating it. Divorce is so common in our culture that when it came time for us to provide a defense of what marriage is, we could hardly do so. And it then became defined by the whims of those who see it as nothing more than a contract between two people. And those in the church who ought to know how sacred marriage is, they get divorced at the same rate as those that are outside the church. And this should not be the way that it is. Perhaps you're thinking, hey, I've met your wife. She's so sweet and wonderful. How can you possibly understand the challenges of a difficult marriage? Well, I do confess that that God has uniquely blessed me. And yet there was a time where I brought my own marriage to the brink of disaster. And I can assure you that it's only by the unmerited grace of God that we are together still today. 
But my purpose is not to stand up here today and paint a bleak picture of our times. In fact, I, I have been so encouraged over the past several years in pastoring at this church to see so many healthy marriages. And, and I've had the privilege of officiating over a few of the newer ones. And as I look out over this room, I see so many great unions that it warms my heart to nearly bursting. And I'm filled with hope for our future. This morning, we're gonna look at a difficult doctrine, but I believe that if we can get the truth of God's word into our hearts and seek our satisfaction and hope in him alone, I think that we can be a generation that renews God's plan and purpose for marriage. That our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren will come from long lines of unbroken marriages and they'll have that expectation for themselves and their children as well. So our path this morning is, we're really just gonna look at what scripture says about divorce, marriage, and remarriage after divorce. And then we'll just kind of consider our own situations in light of that truth. So, so let's begin. Is divorce biblical? I think that most Christians, you know, we get married with the expectation that it's a lifetime commitment till death do us part. And divorce is not an option in our minds. And yet, when marriage proves to be more difficult than we expect or we find ourselves contemplating what life might be like if things never get better, I think questions arise. Our culture misleads us about the nature of kind of true love, right? This idea of finding a soulmate or living happily ever after. And Christians, even we struggle with these ideas. We spend a lot of time trying to ensure that, that we have partnered up with the one that God has chosen for us. And we let ourselves believe that as long as we marry the right person, then God is gonna bless us and things are gonna be good all of the time. But then when we realize that Mr. or Mrs. Wright is not always so wonderful, that they're a selfish human being who always wants their way, or when life's circumstances around us are more difficult than we anticipated they would be, then we start to wonder, have I made a terrible mistake? Is it maybe God's will that I would get a divorce? Did I marry the wrong person? Is God saying that I need to fix that error? Maybe God is testing me. And we'd say things like, surely God doesn't want me to be unhappy for the rest of my life. Am I supposed to tough it out for the sake of the kids? Is separation an option? Does God prefer that to divorce? I think that these are all common questions that Christians sometimes ask themselves. Maybe you've asked yourself some of these questions at different times in your life. Well, the good news is the Bible's teaching on divorce is really, really simple and easy to understand. And the bad news is that it can be a particularly difficult truth to accept when things are not going well in our marriages. And yet we know 
that God's way is always the best path forward. So is divorce biblical? Well, not really. Divorce is always the result of sin. And God is, you, you may have heard this, God's opposed to that. In very broad strokes, we can look at a verse like Malachi 2.16 and see God's heart for divorce. It says this, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. In this verse, God not only states that he hates divorce, notice he doesn't say, I hate those who are divorced. He says that he hates divorce, but, but the further context, the second half of that verse is, it's actually talking about polygamy. I, it would take me way too long to explain how that's the case, but it is. He's saying that taking additional wives is just like divorcing the first one, but trying to cover that up by still calling it marriage. And so God hates divorce in all of its forms. The Pharisees, they tried to get Jesus to endorse the practice of divorce. And his initial response to them was to say that God is against it. We see this in Matthew 19, uh, verse 4. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them man or male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus made it clear that from the very beginning, God intended for those who got married to stay together. This is the clear teaching in scripture. And if you're wondering if you're asking if God wants you to get a divorce, the simple answer is no. He does not. He hates that idea. Now, if you're finding that that statement is a little bit difficult to accept, you're really not alone. The Pharisees also had a problem with it, as did the people in Malachi's day and the people in Ezra's day and the people in Moses' day. All throughout human history, Married people have struggled to stay together. Moses implemented this system of giving a certificate of divorce, uh, basically so that women who were sent away by their husbands could find another man to take care of them. And so the Pharisees, they pressed Jesus on this question. They said in Matthew 19, 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Well, if we go and look at what Moses said, right, we see he did not command anyone to get a divorce. Rather, he kind of mentioned the practice of giving a woman a certificate of divorce within a description of a very, very specific situation. But nevertheless, Moses did not outright condemn the act of divorce, and so the Pharisees felt that it was permissible. By the time of Jesus' day, there had developed two major schools of thought around the passage in Deuteronomy 24, where Moses mentions divorce. I won't read that whole passage, but it begins like this. When a man 
takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and it goes on from there. Well, there's these two schools. They were led by two different rabbis. The first rabbi, Rabbi Shammai, he taught that in this passage, the key word was indecency. He was, it was his teaching that there, if there was some kind of indecent betrayal of the marriage vow, then in that situation, divorce would be permissible. The other school, led by Rabbi Hallel, he focused his teaching on the phrase, finds no favor in his eyes. See, he believed that some indecency could literally be any cause that led to a lack of favor in the eyes of the husband. Uh, The historian Josephus wrote about this. He said that this was the most commonly held view in the day. It was the view that the Pharisees held. And it said that a husband could send his wife away for any cause, such as burning his dinner or losing her good looks, or just because another woman had captured his heart. This is why when the Pharisees asked Jesus about this in in verse 19.3, this is what they ask. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? This is what they're asking. They were following the teaching of Hillel, and it was important to them that they be allowed to divorce their wives for just about any reason. And they wanted Jesus to tell them that Moses taught the same thing. Well, Jesus did not do this. His response to them in verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. See, Jesus pointed out that Moses did not command divorce, but merely allowed it because of their hard-heartedness, because of sin. And then he reminds them again that this was not a part of God's original plan for marriage. And then he wraps it up by siding with Rabbi Shammai. In verse 19, he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Thus, we see in Scripture that there's a general rule, that those who get married are to remain married until death do we part. And the one exception, according to Moses and Jesus, is sexual immorality. But there is another exception that we find in Scripture, and and we take Scripture as a whole. And it comes from the teaching of the Apostle Paul, In 1 Corinthians 17, and I'm paraphrasing it a little bit here, it says, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So is divorce biblical? 
generally no, but in his mercy, God has allowed for two possible exceptions, sexual immorality or abandonment by a non-believing spouse. And this is the clear teaching of scripture. But this kind of begs a question then, why is God so opposed to divorce? Why are these rules so strict? What difference does it make if we stay married or not? Why is it such a big deal? Why can't we simply move on if we're unhappy or no longer in love or bored or want to try something new? Well, I think the answer becomes clear as we look at the purpose of marriage. The Apostle Paul gives us the purpose of marriage in the form of a metaphor that's in his letter to the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22, this is what he says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So this same verse, that a man and woman become one flesh, this is the verse that Jesus cited as the very beginning of marriage. The apostle Paul is now telling us this is a mystery and it refers to Christ and his church. Every marriage is a picture of the gospel. It is a visible manifestation of Christ's love for his bride, the church. And our marriages proclaim the glory of God in the redemption of all humankind. I think of that story of Hosea and Gomer. Do you remember it? God told Hosea, the prophet Hosea, to take a prostitute as his wife and time and time again, she strayed from their marriage. And time and time again, God told Hosea to go redeem her, to forgive her, to take her back. And he did this as a way of demonstrating to Israel his steadfast love and patience with them. And he did it to demonstrate to us his glorious gospel, his gracious gracious gospel. 
And our own marriages are like this, uh, hopefully not as dramatic. But we regularly let each other down. And we have to repent uh, to each other. And we have to seek and receive forgiveness from one another. And it's our choice to continue to love one another despite our imperfections. It shows God's love to our spouse, but it also shows it to a world that is watching. And then parallels with the gospel abound. If we look in Romans 5, uh, starting in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. Not only that but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though Perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. See, we were enemies of God, separated from him because of our sin. But because of his great love for us, Jesus died for us. He satisfied God's wrath and he's bringing us peace with God. And he did this for us despite our imperfection. And yes, our marriages can be difficult It's like that wedding toast, right? First comes the engagement ring, and then comes the wedding ring, and then comes the suffering. (laughs) Our marriages will involve suffering. We'll endure hardship. We're going to endure pain at times. We're going to hurt one another, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes more intentionally. And sometimes we're just going to suffer because of the circumstances that are outside of our marriage and outside of our control. But suffering produces endurance and character and hope. And as our marriage endures, God's love is poured into our hearts. Church, our marriages are a picture of this glorious gospel. And when we divorce even when it's technically permitted in scripture, it does violence to that beautiful message. Is it any wonder why God hates it so much? This is why marriage matters. This is why our society is better off with strong biblical marriages. This is why it matters how we define marriage according to the scriptures, because God is proclaiming his love for the world through our love and respect for one another. 
And our marriages remind us that we were reconciled to God through his son, Jesus. And this in turn means that we are to be reconcilers. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If we're to minister to the world around us, to those who hate us, with this gospel message of reconciliation, how much more should we be ministering to our husbands or our wives who love us in this way? If, God forbid, if we reach a point in our marriage where divorce seems like the best solution, it is imperative that we pursue reconciliation first not as married people, but as Christians. We must abide in Christ and walk in his spirit and allow the fruit of our glorious union with him to shape us so that we are able to rightly engage with our spouse. You know, it was only a few verses back uh, from our current passage when Jesus was exhorting us about the Beatitudes Remember those, we discussed them. They're the picture of what life is like in his kingdom. And truly, it's difficult to imagine the marital conflict in which a person who is meek and merciful and a peacemaker and seeking the righteousness of God, it's difficult to imagine the situation in which they could not be reconciled to their partner. But as we kind of consider divorce, I think maybe it's easy for us to criticize those Pharisees. You know, they wanted to get divorced for any cause. And yet in our culture today, we often cite irreconcilable differences as our reason for ending a marriage. When we ask someone why they got divorced, we'll hear things like, well, we just fell out of love. or he or she just wasn't the one, or we were just so unhappy, or we just realized that we both wanted different things. As difficult as it would be to be in a marriage where those things are a reality, none of those are biblical reasons to get a divorce. In, In fact, choosing to be loving and committed in the face of such things is a beautiful and grace-filled expression. And in fact, grace is that operative term. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, uh, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Church, if we're looking to our marriage to be the source of our joy or the wellspring of our purpose, or the anchor of our value and contentment, then we have made an idol out of our husband or our wife. Sometimes single people, they make the mistake of believing that that all of their struggles will go away if they could only get married. Well, this is not true. If anything, marriage tends to exaggerate our selfish sinfulness And it deepens our need to be dependent on Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one who can satisfy us. Whether we're single or married, whether marriage is difficult or easy, only his grace is sufficient to meet our innermost needs. 
Divorce won't bring us peace. Remarriage to someone different isn't gonna cure those longings that we have inside. We have to stop holding on to this unrealistic expectation that our spouse will save us from unhappiness, will save us from discontent. Only Jesus is our savior. And yet sometimes real damage is done within a marriage where that one flesh union is torn asunder. And even in some of these situations, reconciliation is possible and it ought to be pursued and I've seen it happen. But scripture does give a concession for divorce in cases of sexual immorality, abandonment, or for something as untenable such as abuse. There's a, there's a document in our uh, PCA archives, our denomination they, they did a report on the issue of divorce and remarriage, and I leaned on it heavily in preparing this sermon. You can find it online if you, you know, really want some uh, riveting reading. But allow me to kind of summarize their advice to the church in these three areas. With sexual immorality, uh, not all sexual sin within a marriage would rise to a level that would warrant dissolving the union. And kind of the guiding principle is whether or not the behavior is breaking that one flesh relationship. Adultery definitely does. But maybe, for example, pornography. Pornography by itself is probably not severe enough to justify a divorce. But if that habit, uh, uh, by, like that habit by itself is not enough, but if it became such, so severe that it was a substitute for fulfilling the conjugal rights of the wife, well, I think that would be a very serious problem. And this is a time where perhaps the elders of the church could be helpful coming alongside a couple as they confess and repent and, and seek reconciliation if possible. Abandonment by a non-believing spouse Scripture's pretty clear on this. If a Christian finds that their non-believing spouse is seeking a divorce, they're under no obligation to fight it. Indeed, if a non-believing spouse uh, simply leaves, the believer could even initiate divorce proceedings. And yet, Scripture's also clear that if that non-believing spouse is willing to stay, well, the Apostle Paul says that divorce would not be appropriate then. Finally, we come to this idea of abuse. The imposition of intolerable conditions within a marriage is tantamount to abandonment because that victim of the abuse has no viable option but to leave. And even if that victim was to stay, that profound emotional distance that is created by the abuse is so great between them that it's the same as if one of them had left. And in either case, the abuser has expressed an unwillingness to consent to live together in true marriage. And the subject of abuse is a serious one. It, it, 
If someone is in an abusive marriage, there is no biblical expectation that they remain in that situation. And I know that some churches have taught that there is or that you have to live the rest of your life just separated, but that's just not in the scripture. The church should come alongside of the abused, providing care and comfort. We've got to talk a little bit about remarriage. Scripture is fairly clear on this point. If you remarry after you or your new spouse has an unbiblical divorce, then you have committed the sin of adultery. There's no way around that. Those of us who have an unbiblical divorce and we're not yet remarried, sometimes we meet someone new and then we desire to get remarried or get married to this new person. And, and, and they come to the church, right? And we might say, I'm repentant of my previous ways. I now want to live for God alongside my new partner. Well, this can be a pretty tricky situation because if genuine repentance has happened, well, then there would be a genuine desire to reconcile with our previous spouse. And if that is a possibility, then it must be pursued. If the first spouse is, say, remarried, or deceased, or really resists all efforts at reconciliation, well, then the church could consider sanctioning a marriage with someone new. But what, what do we do if someone has already remarried? What, what if we've already remarried and we suddenly realize uh, that, our, that our divorce was not biblical? Well, what do we do now? Well, like all iniquity, that sin is very serious. It must be repented of. But hear this, that new marriage, that is a one flesh union and it cannot be invalidated and it now stands on its own. And though they are guilty of adultery, once they have repented, that new couple needs to rededicate their life, their lives to following Christ, confident in his forgiveness, and in the knowledge that he has accepted their new marriage, and the church should do the same. Divorce and adultery are sins, but they're not the unforgivable sin. They too are covered by the blood of Jesus. Church, <laughs> this message is a lot of teaching and, and my pastoral heart yearns to be more pastoral, more embracing of you. It, it has to be my hope this morning that the truth of God's word will sink deep into your heart and that you will be aware of the peaceful presence of Jesus. I don't know where you all are in, in your life right now. Maybe you feel stuck or even trapped in a marriage. Maybe you're single and you, and you just have a yearning to get married. Maybe your marriage is really on solid ground right now and you can't even imagine this message ever being necessary for you. Maybe you're like the Apostle Paul and you think, I'm glad I'm single. I'm never getting married. Or maybe you're planning on getting married soon. Maybe even after hearing all of this today, 
you're still contemplating getting a divorce. If you're in that position where divorce seems to be a looming reality, I'd encourage you to reach out to us. You can reach out to me or Ryan or Dwayne. We can remind you of God's word. We can partner with you in prayer. We can be a listening ear. We can assist you even as you seek help from a professional counselor. I just want to remind you, your marriage is a reflection of Christ and his church. And so I think it's fitting that his church would come alongside of you in this season. This is what I know. Jesus is our hope. Single, married, or divorced, we're his bride. He is our bridegroom. And it's only in him that we're going to find satisfaction, peace, joy, and contentment. So wherever you are in life today, struggling in marriage or content as can be, my challenge to you is this. Take this week and focus on him. I have a great resource for you. It's out in our lobby. It's called Gentle and Lowly. It's all about the character and nature of Jesus. There's a QR code. You can scan it and be reading it this afternoon. Take your eyes off of yourself this week. Take your hopes off of any person in your life who isn't Jesus. Let your anxieties and your cares rest on his shoulders because he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for the truth of your word. I thank you for your glorious and beautiful gospel message that though we were sinners and enemies of God, that you came and died on our behalf. Lord, could our marriages be a brighter reflection of that reality could the mystery of that, as Paul said, could that mystery be something that our neighbors and our friends and our family notice and respond to? Lord, for anyone in this room today who felt the, the pain of their current circumstances or previous decisions, Lord, would your spirit come upon them and bring comfort Call them to repentance if necessary. But ultimately, Lord, we know that we are forgiven in your uh, death on the cross. And we thank you for that. We're grateful and we pray in your name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.